I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income, Martin Luther King. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, cooperation, mutual aid, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson, and today's topic is universal basic income. This episode is being recorded in honor of MLK Day because I think that King is one of the most underappreciated thinkers in American history. That sounds ridiculous because there's a holiday for him, but his thought has really been neglected on the left and the right. On the right, obviously, the parts of his thought that focus on race have been neglected. The right merely wants to quote him saying that he believes in content of the character, not color of the skin, and that's all they want to hear from MLK. The left tends to ignore the more complex elements of his thought, and particularly, it's like a mirror image of the right, the left tends to ignore the way that his thinking, especially later in his life, right before he was killed, was not as much about race and more about poverty. What King was working on when he was killed was a sanitation workers' strike, and the sanitation workers in Memphis were mostly black but they were not entirely black, and they were led by a union that was mostly white. And you can see images of King with white union leaders, black workers, and King himself all together. He was looking for, I would say, an anarchist coalition that transcended and overcame race, and it focused on poverty. And as far as I know, he wasn't reading the anarchists, but he was deeply engaged with the work of Gandhi and Tolstoy. And as you know, Tolstoy was basically an anarchist. He just didn't use the word. Gandhi, in fact, was willing to claim the term anarchism for himself. So King is an anarchist. And King is also a brilliant and powerful thinker who is now not read. I know that's a scandalous claim. Well, let me read you some King over the course of this episode, and you can tell me if this is the King that you were taught in elementary school or college or wherever you were taught him. I was never taught this King, not even in grad school. We've got that opening quote. (laughs) King says that uh, basic income is now widely discussed. He's writing in the late 60s. We're still discussing it. We're still not really doing it. We should start. Here's why. Let me begin by explaining what a basic income is. The one I am in favor of is a universal basic income. These terms are not always agreed upon, but I'm going to give you a few terms that you can use to parse sense, uh, to make sense of the various kinds of the income. It just means that the government gives people money. It gives everyone money, preferably, in my opinion, every person. Usually, It would be every citizen. Maybe it would be different for people under 18. We don't have to worry about those complexities. We can just say everyone. And just like when we say everyone now, there's lots of people we exclude from everyone. People under 18, non-citizens, people who are in prison, people who've been convicted of a felony. 
maybe basic income wouldn't apply to everyone in that sense. But as far as I'm concerned, that's an argument for another day. I would just give it to everyone. So the first thing, according to the Basic Income Earth Network, that a basic income should have is that it should be periodic. It's not a lump sum. There's regular intervals. It's like a paycheck. It comes every month or every couple of weeks. The second thing is, and this is a very crucial thing, it is paid in money. So people can buy whatever they want to with it. It's not food stamps. It's not rent assistance. It doesn't go to a landlord. It's just money given to the person. And the third thing is it is given to a person as opposed to a household. So um, classically, when the government gave money, it gave money to the parents of the household or to or based on family and based on how many kids you have, and a basic income would just be to individuals. So it's just a chunk of money given to everyone, asterisk, every couple of weeks or month or whatever. That's a basic income. Now I want to distinguish between the, the two types, the, the good one, in my opinion, and the bad one. The bad one is what's called a guaranteed minimum income, GMI. This basically says the government will make sure that everyone makes X dollars. So if you have a job that pays you $30,000 a year and the guaranteed minimum income is $40,000 a year, the government will give you $10,000. If you have a job that pays you $50,000 a year, the government will give you nothing. And if you don't have a job, the government will give you $40,000. This sounds right. Let's make sure everyone has at least $40,000. But it seems like there will be all sorts of problems. I mean, why not just quit your job and get the $40,000? It seems like a guaranteed minimum income. The virtue of it is it costs less than a universal basic income. But everyone whose job sucks will probably just quit and get $40,000 from the guaranteed minimum income program. And then it will just become a universal basic income program, but only for poor people and once a program is only for poor people, it dies because everyone votes against it who isn't poor and poor people don't vote that much. No, thank you. So instead, let's do a universal basic income. Every individual receives the periodic cash payment from the government. If you make zero dollars, you get the money. If you make a billion dollars, you get the money. Everyone gets the same thing. This is some great equality. And you can just tax the billionaires more they can get $10,000 from the government every month, and then you can take $100 million from them every month. That's not going to cost the government that much money, right? Some people say, why should we give the rich people this money? Well, if we're doing taxes, we can give the rich people the money, and then we can just take it back. Easy peasy. Universal basic income. That's the answer. You may know that Andrew Yang, failed presidential candidate and failed mayoral candidate, but all around, in my opinion, very interesting guy was a big advocate for the universal basic income. In fact, he wanted to do UBI in New York City if he had become mayor. I didn't love everything about his plan, but I liked a lot about his plan. And even a crummy UBI program, and I thought Andrew Yang's was pretty good, is something I want to see because we need UBI. UBI is the answer. So here's Yang. Since 2000, Technology has replaced the jobs of 4 million American manufacturing workers and decimated communities throughout the Midwest. With new developments in technology, experts are predicting that one out of three Americans will lose their jobs to new technology in the next 12 years. We are experiencing the greatest economic and technological shift in human history, and our institutions can't keep up. Without the Freedom Dividend, that's what uh, Yang calls the UBI, 
we will see opportunities shrink as more and more work gets performed by software, AI, and robots. Markets don't work well when people don't have any money to spend. The Freedom Dividend is a vital step to helping society transform through the greatest automation wave in human history. Now, I actually agree with all of that, except the 2000s part. Here's King writing in 1967. Automation is imperceptibly but inexorably producing dislocations, skimming off unskilled labor from the industrial forces. The displaced are flowing into proliferating service occupations. We must create full income or we must create employment. So that's King in 1967, and he's making the same argument Yang is. The only difference is Yang is saying, hey, look at this new thing that's happening. And King is also saying, hey, look at this new thing is happening. Yang calls it AI, King calls it automation. It's the same process. The jobs are going away and they're being replaced by some combination of unemployment, shit jobs, and bullshit jobs. Shit jobs are just jobs no one wants, uh, crummy jobs. A lot of the service jobs are shit jobs. Bullshit jobs are jobs that do not need to exist. So if your job is telemarketing for a company that no one wants to buy anything from, that is a bullshit job. That job exists because someone decided it should exist, but no one wants it. And King is much more willing than I am to consider this idea of full employment. We must create employment, guaranteed jobs. But he emphasizes those jobs cannot be bullshit jobs. He doesn't use the term bullshit. <laughs> but they can't be the kind of jobs that exist for no reason. He's talking about an FDR-style rebuilding of the country's infrastructure. Either one of those is better than what we have now, but I much prefer UBI for reasons I will tell you. So, who would a basic income help? It helps everyone. Here's another quote from King. In the treatment of poverty nationally, one fact stands out. There are twice as many white poor as Negro poor in the United States. Therefore, I will not dwell on the experiences of poverty that derive from racial discrimination, but will discuss the poverty that affects white and Negro alike. So first, if, you're, if you don't spend a lot of time reading historical texts, Negro is just the word that King is using at that time that means black. It's the correct word. There was never anything wrong with the word Negro, except that it started getting used wrongly. In the same way, there was nothing wrong with the word colored, like NAACP has the word colored in it but the word got racist connotations. So King's gonna use the word Negro, I will say black or African-American, but Negro just means black. There's no difference except for historical context, and since he's writing in the 60s, you just need to know the historical context that this was the appropriate term. In the same way in the 20s, colored would have been the appropriate term. To the heart of the matter, there are more poor white people than black people in the United States. That was true when King was writing in the 60s, it's true now. The universal basic income is designed to help poor people. It is not reparations for slavery. It is not affirmative action. It has nothing to do with race. It is about poverty. And most people who are helped will be white people. In fact, Cory Booker, the senator for New Jersey created this strange thing that was kind of like basic income and kind of not. It was more like universal basic wealth. It was the baby bonds program. The idea, and these quotes come from uh, 
the Vox.com analysis, every child gets $1,000 when they are born. And then every year, they can get up to $2,000 more depending on their family income. These, uh, this money will grow. It'll be invested like a retirement fund. And then when they turn 18, they have money. They have money that they can then use for college, for a house, to put in a retirement fund. So everybody has got a decent chunk of money. Now, there's all sorts of ways that this isn't anarchist. It's only allowing people to spend money on certain things. And it's definitely not universal basic income because it's about creating wealth, which is this stable thing that you can build off of, but will not sustain you, as opposed to income, which will sustain you, which comes every month. But it's in the neighborhood of a universal basic income program. And according to the analysis by Vox, black kids, by the time they turn 18, would on average get $29,000, whereas the white kids would on average get only $16,000. But the white share of the people getting the baby bonds would be 51%. This isn't reparations. This is universal. Booker loves King. I have no doubt he was reading King when he was devising this. And the goal is to get outside the entrenched racism of the American system to see that there is entrenched poverty in the American system that affects more white people than black people. Since everyone will be helped, one of the crucial things is that women and children will be helped. Here's King. A host of positive psychological changes inevitably will result from widespread economic security. The dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions of his life are in his own hands, and he knows that he has the means to seek self-improvement. Personal conflicts between husband, wife, and children will diminish when the unjust measurement of human worth on a scale of dollars is eliminated. In the 60s, in 1967, it was still primarily accepted that men's job was to work outside of the household and women were to stay inside the household. The great revolution of feminism unfortunately put more women in the workplace. In other words, it gave lots of women jobs, which is good if jobs are the only way to get money, but horrible because jobs are horrible. And King is saying this universal basic income will eliminate that. Why did women want to go into the workplace? because they were dependent, because they had no power, because without money, they had no freedom. With a guaranteed minimum income, you get feminism. You get full personhood for women in terms of financial independence, and then they don't even have to get jobs. Hallelujah, no one should have to get a job. But there's one group that King specifies will be helped more than any other group by the universal basic income and that is black people. Here's King. We are likely to find that the problems of housing and education, instead of preceding the elimination of poverty, will themselves be affected if poverty is first abolished. The poor transformed into purchasers will do a great deal on their own to alter housing decay. Negroes who have a double disability will have a greater effect on discrimination when they have the additional weapon of cash to use in their struggle. So I asked my students once when I was teaching this, what makes someone poor? They gave me lots of answers. Housing 
and education were the two that came up over and over again. The problems of housing and education. And that makes a certain amount of sense, right? If you have a good education and you have a good house, then, well, if you have that good house, it's probably worth some money. But even if you're just renting it, you're in the right place. You're in the right place to have access to a good education. You're in the right place to have access to the kind of people who have access to money and good education. So this is the standard theory. My students were right that this is the standard theory. All we need is people to have good education and good housing, and then they won't be poor anymore. But that's not why people are poor. People are not poor because they don't have access to housing and education. It's the other way around. You don't have access to good housing and you don't have access to good education if you are poor. And it's especially worse for black people because of discrimination. So someone who is poor is disadvantaged and someone who is black is disadvantaged and someone who is poor and black suffers a quote, double disability. That's king, a double disability. Especially when you think about all of the ways that black people and poor people are kept out of the places that have education and housing. We still haven't answered the question that what makes someone poor? It's very simple, lack of money. And King has utterly convinced me the lack of education and the lack of housing are downstream from the lack of money. They're not causing the lack of money. They are caused by the lack of money. So once poor people have money, they'll have access to housing and access to education. Black people face the additional disability of racism, but King thinks that black people with lots of money can overcome most of the problems of racism. I think he's right. We would have to try universal basic income to find out, but I'm ready to find out. Which leads me to one big question. This is a sensitive topic, but I think it is important to discuss it. As we on the left are struggling to make a more just country, should our focus be on poverty or race? Or can we do both at the same time? There is no clear answer to this. So I'm going to give you two very, very different answers. The first is coming from ta Coates. He was writing for The Atlantic. He's an African-American writer. The second is coming from K.A. Dilday, also an African-American writer, also writing for The Atlantic. I picked these two to show you how complicated and difficult this question is. So here's Coates. And there can be no conflict between the naming of whiteness and the naming of the degradation brought about by an unrestrained capitalism, by the privileging of greed and the legal encouragement to hoarding and more elegant plunder. I have never seen a contradiction between calling for reparations and calling for a living wage, or calling for legitimate law enforcement and single-payer health care. They are related, but cannot stand in for one another. I see the fight against sexism, racism, poverty, and even war finding their union not in synonymity, but in their ultimate goal, a world more humane. So Coates's argument is that oppression takes many, many, many forms, and you have to fight against all of them. One of them is greed, is capitalism, is the thing that has created poverty. Another one is racism, is white supremacy, is the thing that has made poverty worse for non-white people and has created things like systemic police violence against black Americans. And Coates thinks we need to do both of these fights. We need money for all poor people and we need reparations for the victims of slavery. I don't know if you noticed though, 
King didn't think that. And this is one of the things that makes King unpopular on the left. And I'm going out on a limb here in disagreeing with ta Coates, but I agree with King. I think King is right. I think something like systemic racism at this point in American society is caught in an endless cycle, the poverty racism cycle. And if you break the poverty cycle, you will break the racism cycle. Maybe I am hopelessly naive and wrong. But one, if I am, I'm agreeing with MLK, and I don't mind agreeing with King, the greatest thinker America has ever produced. If not the world, is King the greatest thinker the world has ever produced? I mean, I'm pretty partial to Kropotkin, but uh, yeah, okay, King is probably the greatest thinker the world has ever produced. The second thing is, I'm happy to find out if we, we have been doing affirmative action, which is the elite technocratic version of reparations, reparations for uh, black children of lawyers and doctors and engineers. That isn't working. So what, we can extend this to a wider range of non-white people and run the risk um, of creating lots of cross-racial tensions like between the black community and the Asian American community. Or we can give up on the idea of trying to fix things based on race, try and fix things based on poverty, and see if breaking communities out of the poverty trap will also give them the power to defeat things like police violence on their own. That's the anarchist way. That's the way King likes. And I want to be very clear. Coates isn't saying don't do that. Don't stop capitalism. Coates is saying you need to fight capitalism as capitalism and capitalism as racism separately and the two strands will come together. This isn't a bad argument. It might even be right, but I don't think so. I think King is right. He fought racism as racism first. And once he had made huge gains, he and his movement in America made huge gains on race, especially in terms of the legal system, King realized poverty was not only going to prevent black people from realizing all of those gains, but was also going to hurt all Americans. Even rich Americans are hurt by poverty, King says. So that's where King goes. And uh, here's Kay Dilde, as I promised, agreeing with that as well. This is not to argue for an equivalence of historical suffering between whites and blacks, but to emphasize that white supremacy in the U.S. is a strategy, not a system. The system is an economic oligarchy, and racism is an extremely effective tactic for perpetuating it. And the debate over reparations confuses the system with just one of the tactics that sustains it. So what's the argument here? The argument is that racism was created. This goes all the way back to the 17th century. Racism was created by rich white people so that the poor white people would hate the black people and never realize that the true enemy is the rich white people. That's Dilday's argument. That's what she means when she says tactic versus a system. What's the system that the United States uses? It's economic oligarchy. How is that system sustained? Well, by lots of ways. Racism is only one of them. And if you fight racism, you are getting confused about what the real 
battle is. Remember, this is the exact opposite of what Coates says. Coates says these are both very real battles. Here's more Dilde. Would we be speaking of reparations if people of all incomes could live decent, healthy lives, and if we moved away from quantifying success primarily by income? Reparations would address the financial ramifications of the racism that stymies blacks from, quote, winning, and knocks those blacks who have won back down. But they would not right the wrong of a supremacist society that is designed to create a class of winners and a mass of losers, and to do so in part by isolating aspirants from those they leave behind. Oh, yes. Yes, I could not agree with this more. Reparations would fix the problem that success is much harder for black people to obtain. And when they obtain success, it's much harder for them generationally to maintain it. But it wouldn't touch the central problem. And this is also the point of William Derezowitz's book, Excellent Sheep, which is that America is a country about winning. And if you win, you get whatever you want. And if you lose, you are just permanently left out. Reparations runs the risk of creating some black winners to go along with the white winners and just shifting around the racial makeup a little bit of the top 1% and the bottom 99%. Here's more Dilde. The focus should be on transforming the oligarchy, not on lifting up any one segment of society. Reparations are a sideshow. We are living in the now in which millions of people of all races and ethnicities are forced into degradation, ill health, and despair in this rich nation. Overturning that system is a goal that is not out of reach for a people who had the intellectual, political, and social will to survive slavery and beat back Jim Crow. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, I have nothing to add to that uh, quote by Dilde. As far as I'm concerned, she has nailed it. With that said, I do want to talk a little bit more about universal basic income from the Graeberian perspective, which is to say I want to read you some quotes from Graeber about universal basic income after I address the issue of where would the money come from. I wanted to focus on MLK, and that meant dealing with the question of the interaction between race and UBI. I'm sure I will talk about UBI more in a future episode, but this is where I find the value of UBI from King and from his deep understanding of the way poverty and racism interact. There's a couple of big objections to UBI. One I'm going to address very briefly, the second one I'm gonna address with a long Graeber quote, and then we're gonna give King the very last word. The first question is where would the money come from? How could we afford universal basic income? Well, there's some obvious answers. First of all, the government gives a lot of people a lot of money right now, like in the form of food stamps, which I wouldn't want to get rid of. We could have UBI and food stamps. But the government also spends billions of dollars trying to figure out who is eligible for something like food stamps. We could just fire all of those people. Everyone whose job it is to check whether someone is poor enough to have, say, a guaranteed minimum income could be fired because we don't need to be paying them if we're just giving everything to everyone universally. Now, isn't being fired bad? No, being fired is not bad if there is a universal basic income. 
The other way you can deal with this is just raise lots of taxes on the rich people. That's pretty easy. I mean, it's hard to raise taxes on the rich people because the rich people have rigged the system in their country. This might mean overturning the American Constitution to have a universal basic income. Me, I love universal basic income a lot more than I love the U.S. Constitution. I will leave that up to you. The final thing is you could just make money. Won't this cause inflation, you say? Yeah, if you just make money, it does cause inflation. But that's not that big a deal as long as you match the UBI to inflation. Now, you might create a runaway inflation scenario. I don't have time to work through all the reasons why I think that might or might not happen. But what happens during inflation? People get upset because their paychecks don't go as far. So what if the U.S. is just making more money? What would happen over time? The U.S. dollar would be worthless, but that wouldn't be a problem for people who don't have a lot of money but are depending on universal basic income as long as UBI is going up with inflation. Who is hurt with runaway inflation? Well, as long as you are matching inflation with universal basic income, the main people who are hurt by inflation are the people who already have lots of money. And the whole point of UBI is that we are undoing the damage to our country, to our world, that was created by the people who have too much money. So all of a sudden, all of us could have a million dollars. Does that make sense to you? What if you gave a million dollars to everyone? Well, the price of bread would go up a lot, but as long as everybody has a million dollars, they can afford the more expensive bread. What would happen to all the millionaires? Well, right now, if you have $10,000 and someone else has a million dollars, they have a lot more money than you. What if we gave everybody a million dollars? Well, now you have $1,010,000 and they have million. Do they have a lot more money than you? No. Is a million dollars worth a lot less now than it used to be? Yeah, but that's okay. That's only hurting the millionaires. I imagine this will get me some angry emails and I will do an episode on money and anarchism at a future date. Here's the other thing. If everyone has money, will anyone work a job? Well, hopefully no one will ever work a job again because jobs suck. But this idea that if people can afford to live a happy and comfortable life, all they will do is sit around and play video games as opposed to gardening, as opposed to making things, as opposed to caring, as opposed to teaching. I think this is a massive misunderstanding of how most people want to live their lives. Here's Graeber. Basic income might seem like a vast expansion of state power, since presumably it's the government or some quasi-state institution like a central bank that would be creating and distributing the money, even a modest basic income program could become a stepping stone toward the most profound transformation of all, to unlatch work from livelihood entirely. A strong moral case can be made for paying everyone the same regardless of their work. Yet this would at the very least require some kind of monitoring bureaucracy to ensure that people were in fact working even if it did not have to measure how hard or how much they produced. A full basic income would eliminate the compulsion to work by offering a reasonable standard of living to all and then either leaving it up to the individual to decide whether they wished to pursue further wealth by doing a paying job or selling something or whether they wished to do something else with their time. Alternately, it might open the way to developing better ways of distributing goods entirely. Money is, after all, a rationing ticket, and in an ideal world, one would presumably wish to do as little rationing as possible. 
Obviously, all this depends on the assumption that human beings don't have to be compelled to work, or at least to do something they feel is useful or beneficial to others. This is a reasonable assumption. Most people would prefer not to spend their days sitting around watching TV, and the handful who really are inclined to be total parasites are not going to be a significant burden on society, since the total amount of work required to maintain people in comfort and security is not that formidable. The compulsive workaholics who insist on doing far more than they really have to would more than compensate for the occasional slackers. Finally, the concept of unconditional universal support is directly related to two issues that have come up repeatedly over the course of this book. This is the book uh, Bullshit Chops. The first is the sadomasochistic dynamic of hierarchical work arrangements, a dynamic that tends to be sharply exacerbated when everyone knows the work to be pointless. A lot of the day-to-day -day misery in working people's lives springs directly from this source. So here's the that's the first reason. Right now, you can be treated like shit at your job. People rejoice in treating other people like shit. It doesn't matter why they do it. The point is they can do it and they will do it if they know that people cannot quit their jobs. So if you have a universal basic income, you can still work at a job, but the boss can no longer torture you. That doesn't sound too bad to me. Here's the second one. Here's Graber. If universal basic income was instituted, it's very hard to imagine pointless jobs continuing to exist. One could well imagine people who didn't have to work to survive still choosing to become dental assistants or toy makers or movie ushers or tugboat operators or even sewage treatment plant inspectors. It's even easier to imagine them choosing to become some combination of several of these. It's extremely difficult to imagine someone living without financial constraints choosing to spend any significant amount of their time highlighting forms for a medical care cost management company, let alone in an office where underlings were not allowed to speak. In such a world, Annie, who was a real person who worked for a medical care cost management company and wasn't allowed to speak, would have no reason to give up on being a preschool teacher unless she actually decided she was no longer interested in being a preschool teacher. If medical care cost management companies continued to exist, they would have to figure out another way to highlight their forms. No doubt, a certain proportion of the population of a free society would spend their lives on projects most others would consider to be silly or pointless. But it's hard to imagine how it would go much over 10 or 20%. But already right now, 37 to 40% of workers in rich countries already feel their jobs are pointless. Roughly half of the economy consists of, or exists in support of, bullshit. And it's not even particularly interesting bullshit. If we let everyone decide for themselves how they were best fit to benefit humanity with no restrictions at all, how could they possibly end up with a distribution of labor more inefficient than the one we already have? Put my own gloss on this briefly. Graver's point is people say, well, if everyone got paid, why would anyone do any work? Well, it seems obvious that lots of people would still do work, like making food and making art and caring for children and healing the sick. The only jobs that would go away are the ones that we don't actually need, but are maintained for profit or to satisfy the vanity of rich people. That seems to me a pretty good argument for universal basic income. But like I said, I'm not going to take the last word, and neither is Graber. Here's King. The curse of poverty has no justification in our age. 
It is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism at the dawn of civilization, when men ate each other because they had not yet learned to take food from the soil or to consume the abundant animal life around them. The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can send questions or comments to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And also remember, if you can, any help would be so welcome. You can go to everydayanarchism.com and pledge some support. If you're unable to pledge some support, you can still help by sharing the word with more people. Because the more people that find out about the show, the more people who will be in a position to help the show continue. For those of you who have already given to the show, thank you so much. All that's left for me to say is that the theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.